Hello and welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast, a show where we bring you insights from media industry experts to help journalists do their jobs better. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. Today, we'll be talking about communicating with clarity and confidence. The News Explainer has become a popular news format to help audiences understand tricky topics and subjects, and there are few better in the business than BBC News presenter Ross Atkins. This is the first of two episodes with Ross, where we talk about his new book, The Art of Explanation, and how journalists can become skilled communicators in a variety of different scenarios. Ross shares with us two frameworks that he's developed throughout his career. These can help journalists navigate situations within our control, such as presenting the news, and those moments where we need to think more on our feet, like job interviews. Stay tuned for first-class tips and advice for processing information so that you can be easily understood. Don't go anywhere. Ross, welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. Thanks ever so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Jacob. Congrats on the book as well. What's it been like um, putting your thoughts together for that? I mean, in the context of today's conversation, we're going to be talking a lot about, you know, the art of explanation. What's it been like putting the book together? I think the big difference is that, you know, I've been a broadcast journalist since I joined Five Live in 2001. So that's a good while. And the vast, not all, but the vast, vast majority of my work we often make on the day or if not on the day, then certainly to be to go on air the next day or, or pretty soon. So almost all of my working life, I've been making things, releasing them. They're either good or bad or somewhere in between. And you get very instant audience feedback. The difference between scripting and like I do at the moment, you know, four or five minute videos and making a book is is enormous. And it's also required a different mindset to realize that you can work on something for uh you know two years or more before very many people at all see it so there's a huge difference in the experience both in the writing and the the speed at which you release it so it's been quite a different uh process and i've had to you know remind myself a couple of times during the process of writing it that not everything i do to to make a good report for the BBC is necessarily going to be exactly the process I can use mm. to write a book. Fascinating. Uh, there's, there's one particular place I would like to start, Ross, and it's something I really resonated with, with at the beginning. And it's, um, it's an early career interview that you went for uh, at The Independent, which um, didn't go quite mm. according to plan. Obviously, you'd, you'd gone in, you, you really admired this publication, but very quickly on in that interview, you found that the answers you were giving just weren't quite landing with the person on the other side of the desk. Would you tell us more about that? Yeah, sure. So I, in 1997, 1998, I lived in Johannesburg for a year. And towards the end of my time there, I did some volunteering at the Sunday Independent. I had a full-time job as well. So I, I just went in on a Friday night and the Saturday and helped out in any way I could just to find out more about the process of making a paper. And the editor of the Sunday Independent very kindly gave me a reference for me to take back to the independent titles in the UK, because at the time they were owned by the same media group. And in the summer of 1998, I sent off this letter and I got an invitation to come into the independent. And it was a really stark lesson in thinking about what precisely you want to say, because I had taken it seriously. It wasn't like I was thinking, oh, I'll just show up. I'd really thought about it and prepared hard. And almost all of my preparation had been 
getting my head into the news at the moment. I was reading lots of newspapers. I was consuming lots of Five Live in particular. I was generally making sure I was across the news agenda. Though that's not a problem, that wasn't really what was required in that moment. What was required in that moment was having an idea of precisely what I was asking to do at The Independent, because it wasn't an interview as such. It was a conversation that had been instigated by a reference, but it was still a big chance. And I didn't know what I was asking for. That was a big problem to start off with. I didn't know the precise reasons I was going to give why I thought I could do that role, because I wasn't even sure what role I was asking for. And I just realized the moment I started talking that I couldn't talk with precision or clarity about what I was hoping to come out of this meeting. And so not unsurprisingly, the people I was speaking to didn't feel I was doing that either. And so I remember the feeling better than I do the, the details because it's a long, long time ago. But I just remember it entirely being my problem, not theirs. I remember them being friendly and just thinking I'm hugely undercooked here in terms of how I'm trying to communicate what I would like to come out of this meeting. And to my no great surprise, uh, I never got to do a single shift at the Independent. I didn't manage to persuade them to give me a chance. Yeah. I said I related to it, Ross, and that's because one of the first job interviews I went to after finishing uni was with a local newspaper back in my hometown. And I thought, oh, this would be a great gig for me to get into the industry. And, you know, very quickly in the first two or three minutes, like you, I'd prepared, but just the answers I was giving weren't quite connecting with them yeah. for, for whatever reason. And um, it just, you know, the, the energy in the room was starting to fizzle out. And I knew within the first, yeah. you know, five questions, listen, can the, can the ground just swallow me up at this point? Yes, it's, it's a, that's a great phrase, the energy going out of it. I remember feeling that it wasn't career. It wasn't one of, you know, I've done other interviews where I thought, my goodness, this is really turning into a car crash. It wasn't a car crash. I just, the, the energy, I needed to persuade them that based on this reference that from a colleague of theirs in South Africa, that I was worth taking a chance on in some capacity. And I just didn't do a very good job of, of, of making the case because I wasn't even really sure what I was asking yeah. for. What would, what would you do differently if you could go back now? Well, I would do two things differently, or maybe three. The first would be to to more explicitly anticipate the questions that they were going to ask, which is, I think one of them actually said, what do you want to do? <laughs> and and I, I didn't have a good answer. So I hadn't, I had anticipated questions about the news, but I hadn't anticipated questions about what I might do. And so that was a bad starting point. If I had anticipated it, the next thing I would have done would have been to assemble the right information to address that so that I could be really clear about what I was asking to do, why I felt my experience would have uh, lent itself to me doing that, uh, why I felt like my experience on the South African paper could have helped. I could have prepared a load of very precise and relevant information to go with those questions I could have anticipated. And then the third thing, which I think was the biggest thing that I didn't do, which I would do differently now, is that I didn't practice answering a single question, whether about the news or what I wanted to do. All of my preparation was written. You know, I'd looked through the news, I'd gathered information, but I hadn't practiced using it. So even if I had anticipated the questions, which I didn't, or anticipated how to organize the information for those questions, which I didn't, I still wasn't even doing the third part of the equation, 
on the news agenda, which I did prepare, I didn't practice answering the questions. And my experience, and again, I've learned this the hard way on air reporting for the BBC is, if the first time you're saying information out loud is the time when it matters, you're really taking quite a big chance. Or to be more positive about it, if you have practiced using the information that you have prepared, it's much more likely to come out with confidence and clarity. And, you know, I, I can give you a more re much more recent example, which I mentioned in the book, which is I got sent to The Hague in 2017, I think it was, to cover the Dutch elections, to anchor the BBC's coverage of it. And I'd done loads of homework on it with the help of the brilliant team who were there with me. So it wasn't like we hadn't taken the subject seriously. My goodness, we definitely had. We'd put loads of effort in. But about half an hour, an hour before I went on air, someone asked me a question about one aspect of the story. And I started talking and I thought, I'm just not fluent on this. Right. I know it, but I'm not fluent on it. And so I then spent half an hour or so wandering around this square in The Hague, just talking to myself, anticipating questions and seeing how I could stitch together the information I'd already learned, but hadn't practiced using. And so the problem in the end, well, there were multiple problems in the independent, to be honest, but the, the, the three big problems was I hadn't anticipated the questions. I hadn't anticipated how, what information would be relevant to those questions. And I also hadn't practiced how I was going to answer any questions at all. I love that tip that you kind of touched on there, which is to road test, dummy test, kind of these key answers ahead of time where the stakes are potentially smaller. Yes, I find it invaluable. And it doesn't mean that you are just regurgitating something that you've learned word for word. I'd never, ever recommend learning a script, for example, uh, unless there's a couple of very precise broadcasting environments where that might be necessary. But generally, I'd never recommend learning a script, learning whole sentences. But what I would recommend is identify the question you think you'll be asked, identify the information that you think will help you answer it, and then practice talking through that information in a number of different orders. So I sometimes do these drills where if I know I'm going to have to talk about a subject and there are five things I want to mention, I force myself to start on the first point the first time, and then I force myself to start on the third point the, third, the next time. And it's a very good discipline. You become very uh, confident using those pieces of information but rearranging them yeah in the moment and it can allow you to feel engaged with the question you're being asked which of course you need to be precise about the information that you're using and also there's a baseline confidence that you have because it's just not the first time you've tried to use this information just a quick one from me and then we'll get back to the chat with ross our digital journalism conference news are wired is just two months away and we'd love to see you there Come and enjoy some panels and workshops about generative AI, what gets readers to pay, climate change reporting, and much, much more. That's taking place on the 15th of November at Reuters HQ in Canary Wharf, London. Head to newsawide.com for the full agenda and to grab your tickets. We'll see you there. There's something about giving out an unrehearsed answer where you're, the delivery is just a little bit you know, shakier, you don't do it with the same confidence and, and that yes, goes a long way, doesn't it? It does, but I would say it's not about rehearsing whole answers, it's about practicing using the information. Right, those nuggets of information, and it doesn't matter how you verbalise or articulate those, at the crux of it, you've got the point, right? So you're confident about, let's imagine you've got five pieces of information on a subject and you think the subject's going to come up. 
well, depending on the question that you get asked, which you absolutely need to listen to and engage with, it might be more logical to start on the fifth piece of information that you've prepared rather than the first or the other way around. Yeah. So where you can become really fluent and confident is if you've already practiced using those pieces of information in different orders. So you don't feel panicked if you start in one place or another. I find there's basically no limit to how helpful it is to, to practice that. So if I'm going into really big moments like I did the European elections back in 2019 from Brussels, and that's essentially you're covering one election in theory, but really there are many national stories within it. So you have to be reasonably fluent across every single EU member state, including the UK at that time. And, you know, needless to say, that takes a bit of prep. Um, and so I spent the day before those elections in my hotel room just talking to myself again and again and again. And you feel like a bit of a lemon doing it. And the first few times you try it, you're definitely not as fluent as you'd like to be. But there is a kind of magical moment where slowly but surely what felt impossible to be precise and confident with, you start to realize that you can. And that process of verbalization and rehearsal is I mean, other people may have other routes to, to to doing this very well, but for me, it's essential. Yeah, this helps me to feel a little bit more sane, Ross, because, you know, even on like things like the school run, if I've got an interview coming up, I'm playing out the, the likely questions that I'll ask or something like that ahead of time. Absolutely. And that helps you to just, yeah. you know, anticipate, as you say, be able to react if you need to. Yeah, and you can't predict all the questions you're going to be asked. If you're in a job interview, if you're doing a two-way on the TV, whatever the example might be, mm -hmm. you're going to get asked questions that you didn't see coming and that's fine. And you may well be able to respond to them very well. I'm sure you will. Yeah. But there's no harm in trying to guess the ones that might come your way because you're probably are going to be able to guess some of them. And if you're ready for those and you've thought about them, then so much the better because my general advice on trying to communicate clearly in these fluid situations where you I call them dynamic scenarios which essentially just means conversations with people in any form is that the more you can front load the work of organizing the information thinking about what phrases you want to use thinking about how you move between those pieces of information how you explain them how you link together the more that you've done that work before the moment where you actually have to do it, it's going to be helpful. Right, let's recap for a second. We've been talking a lot about dynamic explanations so far. These are situations which are not necessarily within our control and we've been put on the spot. The general best approach here is to anticipate what questions might come up and pair it with relevant information. Then, organise the information into a bullet-pointed structure and start to verbalise and memorise this information. After that, recite the information in any given order, linking them together in a way that feels natural and logical. This way, you can navigate through your points fluently, no matter where you need to start. The more we do this, the less robotic and rigid our answers appear. Job interviews provide a great example, as you can be asked any number of questions, and your fate rests on giving precise and concise answers. The main pitfalls, as we've heard earlier, is failing to anticipate questions, not making your answers relevant to the question, and not practicing your delivery. Don't make the first time you say something a moment where the stakes are really high. If we're being really honest, we've all been caught out here before. This can be applied to lots of other situations in our jobs, such as live reporting, progress reviews, editorial meetings, and so on. Next, we're going to talk about the other type of explanation, situations where we are in control.
I think of explanation as a series of layers. If you were building a house, you'd want to do the foundation first. You would then build, you know, the first layer of bricks, and on top of it, you'd build more and more and more. And my experience of trying to communicate clearly in a journalistic context and elsewhere is that if I go through this process step by step by step, each one feeds into the next one and there's a cumulative process that goes on here. So the first thing I do is I try and assess what I'm trying to do, because if you have a very clear purpose, which is I'm trying to explain this to these people in these circumstances, all of that information should be guiding every decision you make about what to include and what not to include. You've then got to think, well, what information do I need to meet that purpose? So I then go about collecting all the information I think might be relevant. And I don't worry too much about whether I'm sure about that. I just collect as much as I can. So I've just been talking about the European elections. I remember doing that. I don't know how long the Word document was. Well over 100 pages of just all sorts of things, some of which might be relevant, some of which might not be. I then start to distill that information because I always think if I'm to understand information and organize it, the first thing I need to do is get it down into its simplest form. So I get rid of sentences. I just want to end up with pieces of facts or quotes or statistics or whatever it might be. Yep. Cut away the excess, right? Cut away all the excess. You're going to have to add words back in when you want to speak about these subjects or write about these subjects. But first and foremost, I just want to strip it right back so I can see the essence of the information that uh, I'm handling. And there's a lovely moment when you start doing that, where as you start distilling the information, you start to understand it better. At first, you don't. Mm -hmm. But the process of distillation really helps me start to feel comfortable handling the information and understanding it better. Right, because you're, you're internalizing it, aren't you? Yes. And so once you've got that information distilled, then you can start thinking about, well, how am I going to organize this? How am I going to link this together? And when you've done that, well, okay, you've got some clear purpose, some distilled information, you've organized it into clear groupings, you've then put some useful text around it, which allows you to talk through it or write through it, whatever the case may be. I then go on to what I call the tightening part of the process. And this is my favorite part where you go, okay, I'm pretty happy with everything that's lined up, but I'm just going to make it simpler, more efficient. I'm going to clear away any clutter because one of my calculations is every single word, every single piece of information that we push in someone's direction is asking more of them. So the more we can get back to the essence of what really matters and strip away anything else, the better we have of explaining the story um, or the issue. And so the tightening process is very important. And then you've already alluded to it. Then if it was a spoken explanation, then I would get into rehearsing it. I would be practicing using what I prepared so that the words feel comfortable and clear. And at that stage, if I thought, well, what I had written down saying it out loud doesn't work for me, I would change it. So the rehearsing, the rehearsing is a kind of important part of the equation because, again, other people may not be like this, but only when I've said something out loud can I really feel if I've got to a point of clarity. So, for example, this book, I had to read it for the audio book, so I read it all the way from start to finish, but it was quite a familiar feeling because... Wow every single sentence had already been read out many, many times. So I use speaking out loud, even if it's for a written piece of journalism, to make sure I'm happy with the clarity and the flow and the, the way it all fits together. Brilliant. So define your outcome, collect the information, distill the information, 
organize the information, simplify and declutter, rehearse and refine. That's a very good summary. I've been making notes. <laughs> Thank you. Um, obviously, you know, I, I think a good example of this as well is what you've become synonymous with, Ross, is the news explainer format. Um, I noticed you did a brilliant piece recently on unsafe concrete and government spending. And, and you know, I think that's a great example of quite a messy you know, series of information you know, between spending, changes in government, processes, pledges, all this, all these kind of different veins of information. Can we can we take that example and how you what your approach was to sifting through that and and creating your piece? Yes, by all means. So, two of the things that I start to think about when I'm looking at an explanation, and I should say that you know I I do this with a team of brilliant producers, so it's a collective endeavour. Is first of all, mm -hmm. what are we trying to explain? So, if you take the issue of unsafe concrete in schools, there are a number of facets. To that story and i could have made an explainer on any number of them but the point was that we weren't we were making an explainer about government spending essentially we were assessing levels of government spending on school repairs and school buildings going all the way back to labor's time in power under gordon brown and before that tony blair and also we're going to look at warnings and changes of policy around rack the type of concrete at the center of the story. This is where the setup is so important. You've got to be really clear on the purpose of your explanation. It will guide you in terms of what you include and what you don't include. The second thing I often think about is, well, what's the storytelling device that I'm going to use? And in the book, I talk about some of the different approaches that I take in terms of storytelling structures. And there's a number of different ones that you can adopt and everyone will have different thoughts on which ones work best. On this one, I wanted to take on a chronological approach in that I wanted to walk through government spending decisions. And as we walk through those government spending decisions, we would also attach any relevant information in terms of advice on safety around school buildings or advice on the safety of, of rack. But I was very keen that we stuck to the chronology. You don't always have to do that, but in this case we did. So the video very quickly goes back to uh, the Tony Blair announcement in 2003, I think it was off the top of my head, with a new scheme to build schools and to deliver further school repairs. And we went all the way through the chronology right through to the last few weeks where the government has changed its advice on, on the safety of RAC because of a couple of recent incidents. So that structure was going to guide us all the way through. And we were strict, if you watch that video all the way through, we're strict to the chronological structure. The next thing is that we really needed advice on which information was it reasonable to compare with other information. I'm now part of a new new BBC department called BBC Verify and within BBC Verify are some exceptional policy analysts and exceptional data analysts and on this story they were helping us a great deal. So we went to see them and said, okay, well, we're starting to look at the data. They were definitely looking at the data as well. And we had a conversation about which data is relevant and which data isn't relevant. Which data is it fair to use? Which data is it not fair to use? Which data can we use, but we can't necessarily compare with this other data? And that was a really complicated discussion, very much guided by the expertise of my colleagues in, in BBC Verify. But it was a really important discussion because it informed what we could include. And I couldn't get into the scripting of this explainer before we worked out, well, which data can go in and which data can't go in. 
at that point, the, the producers I work with had also started to pull together archive clips and archive pictures and much more recent uh, clips of politicians or commentators talking about the subject. And they started to position some of these elements within that chronological structure that I'm describing. So you start to have a clear purpose, which is an analysis of government spending on this issue. You start to have a story structure, which in this case was a chronological treatment. You start to position relevant data under the advice of experts who know more about that than I do. You start to position that data within the structure and you start to position pictures and quotes and also uh, clips or SOTs to use the jargon within that structure as well. At this point, you start to get a piece that's starting to take shape, but we need to see if I can write through it. So then it's my job to sit down and do a draft script. Sometimes the producers will also put uh, lines of suggested script in. It's a collective endeavor, but the buck stops with me on that one and that I need to end up with a script that I think walks the viewer through the issue. At that point, when I've done a first draft, we'll then start showing it to our editors who are very heavily involved. We'll start showing it again to the people who are expert in this particular subject, because, of course, I'm a generalist, as are the producers I work with. And so whenever we produce a video, we work in tandem with BBC experts on that subject and we'll look at the first draft. And there'll always be things we need to change or we'll assess both the data we've got, the pictures we've got, the language we're using, we'll assess it all. We'll draw up a list of things we need to improve or find. We refine it again and that process goes on repeatedly until we're happy. And then the final part of the jigsaw or the final part of the process is when we are confident that we're in a position that, that this is getting reasonably good to record, we then will formally send the script containing all of the elements that will be within it as well as my words to the relevant editors to be signed off and the relevant experts to be signed off as well. They then all need to come back to us and say, yes, we're happy with this. And it's only at that point that I would go into the studio and record the piece. Mm. Dynamic explanation in real time there, Ross. That was that was brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> but, you know, I, I take a few things that, from that response. But, you know, one is like the filtering process there. You know, with, with each layer, there's, there's refinement. When you watch the piece, you realize that every word kind of counts. There aren't any wasted seconds. Because, as you said before, each word adds more requirement and heavy lifting for the viewer so each one needs to count and that i suppose is one thing i really take as well but i was just gonna say one other thing that i would emphasize is that when we are going through the scripts of course we're looking to make sure it's fair and factual like you would do in any piece of bbc journalism but one of the two things i am particularly looking for is first of all are there any wasted words you've already alluded to that are there ways i could say this more simply or more efficiently and i find almost always there are if i keep coming back to it i can tighten it but the second thing is to be highly attuned to when we've made a leap right where we've assumed that the audience can get from one point we're making to another but we haven't effectively taken them through it or we've referenced an issue or a uh, a piece of language or an announcement and we haven't fully explained what that is. Now, hopefully there aren't too many examples of that because we're attuned to this from the start, but it can still be the case that something slips through the net. And those moments where you aren't really explaining either the, the, the piece of information you're introducing or how the new piece of information links to what's gone before, those can be weak links in the chain. Yeah. And if you don't address them, 
you don't take people with you. you they, they quite reasonably will get lost with what you're telling them. So as we're reviewing it, quite often one of us will write in the notes going like, I still don't think we fully got this one across as clearly as we need to. We never wish it away. We're actively looking for that. And often the final stages of the editing process, even when the editors and the experts are saying, okay, this all lines up, often the final, final thing that I'll still be playing with is the two things. The one you've mentioned, are there any wasted words? And the second one, which is, am I sure I've been as clear as I can with my language to make this as consumable as possible? And paying attention to both of those things really brings rewards because you might think that spending ages just looking at you know a few words isn't the biggest thing if everything is already factually correct but actually if there are 10 moments through a piece where you're not quite explaining yourself as precisely as you'd want there's a cumulative effect there which can harm the quality of your work or to be more positive about that if you can spot them all then you can really raise the the quality of your work yeah the weak link point you make really stands out to me because with a news explainer all it takes is one broken link one missing stepping stone and you haven't carried the audience with you and suddenly you're on another point right and they're still kind of all hang hang on a second how have we got here yeah and that to me feels like a really really important point when it comes to news explainers in particular yeah and i i get this as a news consumer we've all been there where you're reading a story and you get to the point in the story and you think hold on how did we get here or hold on you're just saying that but why is that happening or why did that politician say this or why have they made this announcement now mm. and you know one of the things i think journalism i know this is a statement of the obvious but we should be answering questions answering the questions that our audiences have about the stories and issues we're covering and one of the most effective ways i know to make journalism helpful and again this might seem obvious but it's a helpful device for us is to make a list of the questions that we have about the subject and to make a list of the questions that we think the audience will have about the subject and make sure that by the end of the, the process of making the piece, the video in this case, we've answered all of them. Because you don't want to be leaving people with that feeling that you're describing, which is at a point in the story, you just think, hold on, I'm lost or hold on, I don't quite understand why that part of the story has just happened. If the audience is wondering that, that's very much our fault, not theirs. And we need to watch out for those moments. Well, speaking of audience questions, you won't want to miss part two of this episode where Ross will be answering some of your questions that you sent in. Thanks for that. That's going out next Thursday. If I take anything from the conversation so far, it's that being skilled at explaining gives you an edge in many scenarios, not just presenting the news. A good takeaway so far is that explanation process. Define an objective from the start. Collect, distill, and organize your information. Then simplify and declutter it then rehearse and refine your delivery until fluent. That works very well for news explainers in particular because assumed knowledge and too many words can all result in the audience struggling to keep up or being left behind. However, you told us other areas of your work where you wanted to become better at explaining. Tune in next week to hear about pitching for stories and projects, convincing readers to trust us and leading your team. If you don't want to miss it, make sure to search and subscribe to the Journalism.co.uk podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I'd also love to get your thoughts on the episode. I'm on Twitter slash X at JPG Journalism or email me on jacob at journalism.co.uk. But that's all we have time for today. Catch you next week.